Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 149. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. Here to celebrate a film that recently had its 35th anniversary, 1986's Basil of Bacon, no, The Great Mouse Detective. <laughs> For those of you who are up on your Disney history, you know that originally this film was called The Great Mouse Detective, and there was a minor revolt at the Disney Studios when they renamed it The Great Mouse Detective. I have to ask you, was this a movie that was in major rotation for you? Because I can tell you I wore out the VHS. I actually wow. had this taped off of the wonderful world of Disney on, for those of you in the New York Tri-State area, Channel 7, uh, ABC, I wore this tape out. It wasn't big for me personally. My brother was a fan of it, but it wasn't in heavy rotation the way certain others were. Like last week we talked about... The Fox and the Hound, and my brother had that on repeat because this was such an interesting time in Disney history. And if you've listened to our show for a long time, you know that we are obsessed with Waking Sleeping Beauty, the documentary on the Disney res renaissance and basically the revival of the company yeah. when they started turning out hits like Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, etc. But this is the period just before that where the wheels started falling off the wagon. And that sort of started with the Fox and the Hound because, as we had mentioned last week, you started to see that passing of the baton where in the same frame on the opening credits, you'll see the nine old men, the likes of Frank and Ollie, on the same panel as the new wave of Randy Cartwright and Glenn Keane and even Tim Burton. So you're already struggling with teaching the next generation of an animators and the next generation of storytellers. And Fox and the Hound didn't do that well commercially. And then you follow that up with the Black Cauldron. And if you know anything about Disney, we know what happened there. So there was a lot of pressure on the Great Mouse Detective to perform well. And that is one of the reasons that they changed the name from Basil of Baker Street to the Great Mouse Detective because Jeffrey Katzenberg, who they had brought in to sort of save the studio, had this grand marketing idea that the name was going to change everything. But I love the hoopla that this created, that it was even a Jeopardy question. Yeah, I mean, listen, if not for anything, but if not for the success of this film and Oliver and Company, you probably don't have The Little Mermaid and Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and Lion King. Everything that came after that, I mean, being on the heels of the Black Cauldron... I think you I think you have to really be appreciative of this film because without it I don't think we're really talking about Disney animation today. Absolutely. This is where we started to climb out of the hole. Yes. So this review is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or Etsy, search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co., and shop for all of your straw charm needs. It's London, 1897, as Olivia Flaversham 
celebrates her birthday, her father Hiram is kidnapped by a peg-legged bat named Fidget, so she seeks out the famed detective Basil of Baker Street to help find him. She meets Dr. David Q. Dawson back from serving in Afghanistan, who helps her find the eccentric Basil. Initially, Basil isn't interested in helping her, but as soon as he finds out that Fidget is the culprit, his tune changes as he has been trying to catch Fidget, uh, Fidget and his boss, Professor Radigan. Radigan, meanwhile, is using Flaversham as a means of building a robot because he is a toy maker by trade that is a replica of the Queen, but we aren't sure why yet. We don't know why they are making this robot. What we know for certain is what happens when you call Radigan a rat, however. Together, Basil, Dawson, and Olivia board Toby, who happens to be Sherlock Holmes's dog, and set off to find Fidget. They find him in a toy shop stealing uniforms off of wooden soldiers, but he sets off all of the mechanical toys, kidnaps Olivia, and escapes. Upon learning Olivia is in trouble, Hiram promises to finish the robot by that night. After reviewing a checklist that Fidget left at the crime scene, they track Fidget down at a tavern called the Rat Trap. After following him to Radigan's hideout, Basil and Dawson are captured and tied to a mousetrap. Meanwhile, at Buckingham Palace, the Queen's Diamond Jubilee is underway, and Radigan unleashes his plan to kidnap the Queen, replace her with his robot, and name himself the ruler of all mousedom. Basil and Dawson escape Radigan's trap, rescue Olivia, and expose Radigan and his scheme. As mayhem ensues, Radigan kidnaps Olivia and flies away on a zeppelin, but is pursued by Basil, Dawson, and Hiram, eventually crashing into Big Ben. Eventually, Olivia is rescued, but Radigan and Basil fall off of Big Ben. Basil, grabbing the propeller from the... Uh, Zeppelin that uh, Radigan flew away on is able to save himself and returns to the others and is then honored by the Queen and takes Dawson on as his, really as his partner in crime. Except they're not criminals, but you understand the point. Okay. So, this movie, it's... It starts to turn the page in Disney history in terms of being a commercial success and sort of rehabilitating the animation department. But what's interesting is that it is a very dark, very dark start to the film. This, The start of this movie used to scare me as a kid when Fidget would bust into the toy shop and Olivia would be thrown into that cupboard and they would just destroy the place and she would be left all by herself calling for her father. It always like left me with a pit in my stomach as a kid. It's very jarring because I love this little world that they created in London that's sort of hiding in plain sight where, you know, it's not something like Zootopia where they have a subdivision where all of the rodents live it really is just the London that you know, but you don't know. So I love how they set that up. I wish that it existed in the same plane as Mr. Toad. Maybe it does. I wish there was like a little connector that maybe hinted at them being in the same time period. 
Um, but yeah, you have that lovely setup and then it literally comes to a crashing halt when Fidget comes in. And there is nothing more sad than Olivia calling out for her father where they just, you know, sort of pull out and it gets wider and wider and you just hear her screaming for her father and it's it's awful. Yeah. And then it's confusing because the opening song is like kind of jovial and happy. Yeah. This this actually this little subculture that you're talking about reminds me of a very, very short lived Saturday morning cartoon called Capital Critters where you had mice and rats that lived underneath Washington, D.C. Do you remember Capital Critters in no, like 1992? Not at all. I think it ran for one at most two seasons, but for some reason I loved it. And they used to like show it on Cartoon Network when Cartoon Network used to really rerun a lot of those old cartoons before they did a lot of their own original programming. I remember there being a Capital Critters marathon the night before Easter Sunday when I was like eight years old. And that's what my brother and I watched all night. It's the most random memory. But I think that that show took a lot of influence from this because it was the same thing. You basically have what was fun about that show and what's brilliant about this movie is you have, like you said, it's not only hiding in plain sight, but it's it's rodents replicating their human counterpart. Right. So, like, you have Basil of Baker Street, and he lives below Sherlock Holmes. And the queen for Maustum lives in Buckingham Palace. So there's this really interesting mirror effect that's going on. And I think that they really do a great job of having a lot of fun with it and using it to their advantage throughout this entire film. I really love that they did that because there were a million other ways this could have gone. For example, if Basil was like, if they had incorporated the human world more so than just living on the same streets, if Basil was feeding Sherlock Holmes information and helping to solve his crimes, or if he saved the real queen, uh, I'm glad that they kept it those mirror images but I love how they did tie it together where you actually do see Sherlock Holmes and Watson and Toby really bridges both worlds I thought that was really cool right so we get into Basil's house because the thing is like this movie moves quick it's only got a running time of an hour and 15 minutes for for a theatrical release it's actually quite a short movie yeah, and it's the pacing is interesting too because there's not a ton of scenes and you spend a long time in each one but it doesn't drag. It doesn't drag. It feels like a movie that it's so it's almost like counterintuitive. It's an hour and 15 minutes long, but it feels like a 90 minute movie but not in a way where it gets boring or slow. Exactly, because when you break it down, it's Basil's house Streets of London. Radigans. Radigans, the toy shop, the, the sea shanty bar. And Buckingham Palace. The streets Palace. again, and then Buck Buckingham Palace and Big Ben. So, yeah, I mean, eight eight scenes in the entire movie. Yeah. Really is all it is. But oddly enough, it doesn't drag. So we get there. I love Basil's workshop. I love that he's got 
all of these. It looks like potions and experiments. I love when he comes in and he's just like so erratic and eccentric and he's trying to match the bullet up. I, I remember as a kid, especially for a little boy, right? Because I saw this movie for the first time. I want to say I was five years old. And so up to that point, Little Mermaid had already come out. We just had Beauty and the Beast. And, you know, you're raised on your healthy diet of Snow White and Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella. So up to that point, there weren't a lot of Disney films that a five-year-old boy, as much as you like those other movies, there wasn't really a movie that you could connect with other than, say, The Jungle Book. So, Which was your jam. Right. Or, or, or Robin Hood. Robin Hood would be another one. Right. So... Having this movie, when I saw Basil for the first time as a kid, I remember immediately loving him. And as a as an adolescent, he was one of my favorite Disney characters of all time. He really does have such a great entrance because he's so locked in to what is going on in his head. He has no regard for what's going in around him. He reminds me of... Well, actually, I... This predates it, so I should say that Johnny Depp's Ichabod Crane in Sleepy Hollow reminds me a lot of this, because he doesn't care how weird his experiments are. He knows what he's doing. Right, and you get a feel for him and for his intelligence when he immediately calls Dawson out as a doctor, and when he says, how do you know that, and he launches in, well, it's this stitch, and only a surgeon would use this stitch on your sleeve. It's so good. That attention to detail both from the character and to the filmmakers is incredible. And I thought it was really interesting too, that they would do something as timely as I came back from Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that the introduction, because we're, I mean, we're only five minutes into the movie. I think the introduction for all of the characters was very, very strong. Definitely. And that scene between Dawson and Olivia when he offers to help her is really sweet. Right, because Olivia is just a really cute kid, right? And I think that it immediately does a good job. Not that you need to soften Dawson because we don't really know who he is, but you need that yin and yang. You need someone that's going to come in and is going to ground Basil because Basil is just so frantic all of the time that you need somebody that's going to like just mellow out the room a little bit. And I think that they do a good job establishing Dawson as that character. And I also think that they, you know, you don't really know what to expect at first because now you're hearing that he's a veteran coming back from a war and now here he is helping out this kid. You don't really know what to make of him at first, but it softens him immediately. Yeah. So we find out that he... Basil has been pursuing Fidget this whole time because he really has no interest in helping Olivia until he finds out that it's Fidget because he's going after Radigan. Now we get introduced to Radigan because, again, the movie in the very beginning really moves very quickly. Radigan, first off, without getting too much into character, Vincent Price... Who is a legend. Incredible. Is pure gold. But what I love about Radigan is the way that he's animated. Yes. I love his look, but he's got these great mannerisms. And you meet him by basically like 
kind of launching into a song, which kind of seems out of place for a movie that's really not a musical, but but all of it works. I think the movie does such a good job of just establishing all of these characters so quickly that it sort of makes up for the fact that it's only an hour and 15 minutes long, and I like the fact that they don't waste a lot of time on useless backstory to introduce us to these characters. I wonder if this wasn't originally supposed to be a musical and they added these numbers to stretch it out for time a little bit because not that the musical numbers are bad, but you don't really need either one of them because the other one takes place in the bar and it does nothing to move the story forward. Same with this. It gives us some character description, some character development, but um, you didn't necessarily need the Radigan number. However, because we have it, it does work for him because it establishes him as a panache villain. Like he does remind me of a Jafar or a Scar in yes, his own right. Exactly. Um And it's such great irony to have a cat as his muscle. I love that whole I love the fact that they cover up that he's a rat. Yes. It's so clear that he is. I love that they have this cat um as his weapon. Everything about it works. I'm going to ask you this question now because I was going to ask it later, but I'm going to ask it now because we've already mentioned a handful of times that the movie only has a running time of an hour and 15 minutes and it's got two musical numbers, but it's not a musical. Does this movie, now that you're watching it with an adult set of eyes and and more critically for the purpose of doing this, com- or, you know, for doing this show and having this conversation, were you left with the feeling that there is something on the cutting room floor that we're not seeing, given its running time, given the fact that you only have two musical numbers. Am I also factoring in that it's Jeffrey Katzenberg? Yes. Then yes. Because we know how he loves to cut animation, and that's a big problem. I mean, look, I understand why he wanted to cut apart the Black Cauldron. He would have just been better off if he burned the, you know, burned the original, but... Um, yeah, there's just something, you know, Disney, you're either doing a musical or you're not doing a musical. I don't know of any other Disney film that has literally two songs in it and that's it. I mean, like I said, the, the one that takes place in the bar gets a pass because you would expect ambient music, at least a piano player in the bar. I'll let that one slide. I mean... This you could kind of give the same pass to and make the same argument for because they are all drinking. So even though they're not in a bar per se, they're at like Radigan's It's pad. like his hangout that he also has a, like spotlights in and tables. It don't, well, now that I'm thinking about it, and maybe it's part of the Viz- Vincent Price performance, maybe it's the character design, he almost reminds me of like a mafioso which you wouldn't necessarily expect because this is taking place in London, but, you know, we're only 12 years removed from Godfather at this point, so maybe there was a little bit of influence there, and I kind of see that all working because Radigan's creating, like, this whole atmosphere, and clearly he wants to be praised, so... I don't think it's that far out of the realm of possibility that a bunch of drunk mice are singing to him. I kind of, um, sometimes I'm reminded of the... Uh, Gaston? The, 
Uh, no. The Timothy Dalton villain in The Rocketeer. Somebody who's kind of suave and panache. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, that was a little bit different because he was a movie star. But somebody who thinks who he is, he's well-dressed, he's well-spoken, he's calculated, he has a plan, he is an eccentric. Um, Obviously, 1897 versus, you know, the 1930s or 1940s, it's totally different. But those... But those characters, to me, sort of are in the same vein. Not unlike, you mentioned before, Scar and Jafar. Or in this case, the number, like I said, reminds me of breaking out into Song of Gaston's tavern. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where, and it, it is kind of the same premise. is LeFou's trying to sing him a pick-me-up song, and this is to feed Radigan's ego. Correct. And then, of course, he gets called the rat and... That poor mouse gets fed to Felicia the cat. Um, now we're kind of in the toy shop. <laughs> so yeah. like we kind of just go like out of this musical number. The musical number serves to introduce us to Radigan, who Basil just basically he mentions to Olivia, I'm after this guy. And then we get the musical number and then it flashes back to Basil's and they get on... Toby and off they go and now we're in this toy shop they plant Dumbo they actually planted Mickey Mouse as well I think it was maybe it's a bit of a stretch because it wasn't a Mickey Mouse per se but there is a structure in the film that as I look at it has the ears and the head it's it's the three circles that form the classic Mickey shape that we're used to. For sure. So Disney planting those Easter eggs in there. Um, And yeah, I mean, basically here comes Fidget. And this scene I thought was great because you you get a little bit of drama here, but you also, it's important to see that Basil is going to fail, right? Because if Basil is just this great detective who constantly gets himself out of trouble, it's not much different, and again, these movies came out after this, but it isn't much different than a Captain Jack Sparrow, or in the same vein as that eccentric, uh, you know, and sort of a loon, when Robert Downey Jr. played Sherlock Holmes um, opposite... um, Jude Law. Jude Law. I was going to call him Ty Law, but Ty Law was a cornerback, and he played for... (laughs) I think the New England Patriots, Jude Law. Um, but the same thing, kind of like that over-the-top eccentric, you could see the white of his eyes from the International Space Station and just kind of like happens to trip over himself and he he never really falls down. Right. And I think that by exposing, you, you had to expose Basil. You had to show that he's he's wildly intelligent, but he is imperfect after all. I think that was important character development and again it's all happening so quickly because the movie does have such a short running time like I know I'm kind of like beating this to death but I think that it bears to be repeated over and over again because it is a success of the filmmaking you're right you do sort of need a little bit of that pardon the pun game of cat and mouse because at this point as you said, we know Basil is very intelligent. Uh, you had to raise the stakes a little bit. 
not that we want to see anything happen to Olivia, but you need something else so he's not immediately on Radigan's tail because otherwise then this movie would be 45 minutes. So you sort of need to let Radigan get one win. And you also need the motivation for Olivia's father to take place in this diabolical scheme because when we first see his capture, he's got this robot built and he did a good job with it. It's working. Radigan's plan is going to get executed. And then, you know, once he realizes that he can stand up to Radigan and he doesn't want to be a part of this scheme, he trashes the robot. And then Radigan says, all right, well, I'm going to go after your daughter. And that's exactly what he does. So you have to keep her father motivated to finish out the deed. This toy shop scene, though, not just because of Olivia's capture, because it's horrible, but you mentioned Fidget's first appearance is what scared you. This is always what got me. Oh, as the baby? Not just that, but the whole scene is the stuff that nightmares are made of. And it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be dark. It's supposed to be scary. The toys are supposed to look vicious. But yeah, there is nothing like when he jumps out of the baby carriage. Yeah. That was an unsettling image. They do such a good job. The animators, you could tell, had a lot of fun with Fidget because he is kind of a fun character, even though he's a villain, he's a fun character anyway. But you could tell that they really had a good time playing with him and and showing different ways that he can kind of pop out and scare you. But at the same time, he's such a funny character that it's it's enough to to leave a kid unsettled, but not to the point where the movie is too scary for a kid. And it also, I think, you needed to do something here with Dawson. Because remember, the whole reason why Olivia gets kidnapped is because Dawson is supposed to be keeping an eye on her and she wanders off to go look at what she thinks is a baby toy and it turns out that it's Fidget. So you needed a failure for both of them because you kind of needed a bit of a strain on their relationship early on. Right, because we know Basil's going to be in his own mind, so this was Dawson's one job, and he does take it very personally. And, you know, he you can, you can see it really messes him up, and he's pretty much not out for the count the rest of the film, but Basil now really has to drag him along. So I kind of like that you get that push and pull of what eventually becomes their partnership. Like it wasn't always perfect between them. Right. So it also serves to show how they are going to execute Radigan's ultimate plan because Fidget's stealing the outfits off of the wooden soldiers that the mice who work for Radigan are going to wear so the queen thinks that they are of the royal guard. Of course it's not. Do you have anything else before we go to the rat trap? I'm curious, actually, if you have anything else before we get there. No, not really. But, I mean, that is really Dawson's motivation because in the next scene he's dressed like a pirate and he thinks he looks ridiculous. And it, it's a nice uh, it's a nice way to lighten the mood a little bit. But, again, now he's fully invested because he's failed Olivia and he's going to do whatever he can to save her. Yeah, and Dawson looks like Smee, and Basil looks like Jacques Cousteau. And I love that. I love everything about that. I love how Basil just becomes like an actor, and he's so good at hiding his accent and putting on the show. Um, 
I love the set. The set is outstanding. The sets and the costumes. The design of this film from top to bottom is absolutely outstanding. Yes. It's some of the best that I think you have seen in any Disney film. But this set in particular is a lot of fun. And it's kind of what you assume you're going to see in a saloon. There's that fog of tobacco smoke, of cigarette smoke and pipe smoke that's just kind of lingering. And uh, you've got the piano player and he's got his suspenders and his striped shirt on. It's kind of like you're at the hoop de doo review. Um, everything about this setup. And then you have, they're just throwing tomatoes and whatever they can. It, basically everybody but the can-can girls. Um, it's, a, it's a fun scene. For sure it's a fun scene. I would absolutely love if they did something like Hoop de doo but it was a piratey bar like this. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I guess if the movie had done a little bit, but not that it didn't do well. It did very well. It was a commercial success for them. Um, I suppose if it would have been a major blockbuster, perhaps you would have seen something in the parks themed after that location. I'm sort of surprised that we don't have that. But you don't really have the Great Mouse Detective in the parks anyway. Like, perhaps... Basil and Dawson come out as like a rare character meet and greet because I know you get them in the park sometimes, but like in all the trips we've taken, I've never seen them. And like I've never seen them like when you run wine and dine, you get a lot of rare characters or even some of like the after hours events that we've done. I've never seen these characters roaming the park. Well, I didn't mean Great Mouse Detective specifically but i mean i would love to see like do something with the tortuga tavern it's right there just extend the pirates ride over give us like that really authentic sea shanty bar feel well that location is never open anyway i know so even if they did theme it this way we would never know so this leads to basil and dawson getting captured um and <laughs> Uh, Radigan is going to take no chances. He's not going to take any chances that these two are to get away. Between the rat trap, a pistol. The arrow. An arrow. I think he had a guillotine. And then he had, a, like, a, uh, he had a cinder block. Amazingly, of course, they get away because Basil is just that smart. But uh, certainly he was not going to take any chances. And it's... It's a it's sort of um it's a sad scene for Basil because he knows his goose is cooked before they even get him into that rat trap when he hangs his head and he knows that he's been bested by Radigan and he just kind of stares out into space and it's Dawson that's trying to get him to like snap out of it and there is a moment of vulnerability here for Basil where he is just ready to give up and accept this fate it's a it's quite a startling scene for a character that up to this point has been very very eccentric it's funny that you say radigan is taking no chances with trying to kill basil and dawson because their capture he's got this whole party set up they've tracked down his location and you know he's got all of his minions and they're drinking and but but they have banners and confetti, and I thought that was so funny and so on brand for Radigan. And this is where you get a payoff 
to the earlier scene with the song where, you know, we were just debating, should it have been a musical? Do you really need it? This is where I would argue that, yes, that song works because it's got that villain panache. It's got that flair. And that's exactly what he would do to capture them. Yeah. He he literally rolls out a welcome wagon. Exactly. And now, like you said, they're on the mousetrap. He's thinking his goose is cooked. And in the 11th hour, at the last possible second, Basil times the escape perfectly. I love how his wheels start turning based on something that Dawson said. So you see that partnership and that bond really start to grow. Um, And they make this amazing escape. All of these different methods that Radigan's going to kill them with fire off and Basil manages to time it down so that they can even smile for the picture at the end of it because of course in true Radigan fashion he wanted the moment of what he thinks is going to be his victory to be documented and he wants to see them expire and amazingly Basil and it doesn't even seem that far-fetched either this is where the animation is so great and yes it gets very cartoony but it still all works and you know he pulls Dawson next to him and Dawson's completely terrified and he's gonna pass out and he even manages to catch Olivia and he's got the big smile on his face when that when that camera snaps his photograph it is a cheese-eating grin it is for sure so now we are moving on to Buckingham Palace where Radigan starts to execute his plan, which is to use Hiram more or less as a puppet master to work the robot that looks like the Queen. They have a voice box in there that when you speak into it, it sounds like the Queen and they are just following a script. I think that the scheme... To me, it seems like a good idea. But they got to work on the title a little bit. The Ruler of Maustum. Sort of seems a little lazy. Almost like the Great Mouse Detective. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Kind of. Um, I don't know why. I love everything about this robot. I love the movement. I, I love the design of the queen. I, I just love everything about it. Because it reminds you of something that would have been at Lester's Possum Park. <laughs> Except guess. without the broken wood and jagged nails. I guess. Well, I also like, too, the the toy that um, Flavisham makes Olivia. The the ballerina that comes out of the flower. Yeah. It's so beautiful. They Like, they really... Like, there's your marketing, Katzenberg. You could have done so many cool toys. With this film. Yeah, and I love the fact that they actually do pay off on kidnapping Flaversham because the whole time you're sort of wondering, like, why in God's name would they kidnap a toy maker? It didn't make any sort of sense. A toy maker that is not particularly close to the queen. He doesn't know Basil. Why him? But once you see this plan start to be executed, it makes all of the sense in the world. Definitely. Speaking of payoffs, like I said, I love that Toby was the bridge between Maustum and the human world. But 
they deliver again because he's ultimately the one who chases the cat away. So he wasn't just like a throwaway character that they used for transportation. He's actually a big plot device. For sure. And then the movie basically ends. It's a very abrupt ending, which I'm kind of fine with that they don't like drag out this ending very far that uh, as soon as the robot is exposed, Radigan and Fidget fly off in this Zeppelin and they are chased by Basil and the bunch. And then they crash into Big Ben and there's a bit of a struggle. And when Big Ben strikes, you know, at the hour, they fall off and Basil flies back up and then, you know, the movie ends. I don't think you really needed to drag that out. I'm being honest. See, and I feel like Big Ben does drag. That's the only part of the film that drags for me because there are so many falls. When they initially crash Big Ben and, and they come to and they wake up on the gears, Olivia has the narrow miss between the and and she's literally just sitting there waiting to be crushed that always bothers me I mean what's she gonna do jump to her death no but it's such a near miss uh and then they make it back out to the hands and they fall again and then you think that Basil's going to make it but he falls with Radigan and then you don't see him for a minute and he comes back up on the the propeller propeller Yeah. yeah exactly so to me that stretches on a little bit because it it's so dramatic and it does stretch out. But this is one of those times where I question, did you leave this in to stretch the film out? Because to me, it could have ended in the last scene when Radigan gets caught because the reveal is so wonderful how Flaversham has been feeding the lines to the queen and he's speaking into the, into the microphone and it's projecting out to her court and we see her speaking to the audience. And then all of a sudden she starts saying these really off color things. And it's revealed that it's Basil because he has gotten to the microphone. They've saved Olivia's father. They've reunited the two of them. Yeah. It's really good. And uh, they've got fidget all tied up. The actual queen has fidget tied up. It's really funny. And to me, it's like, okay, you're busted. The plan's over. Um, but they don't have Radigan at that point. That's the only thing. And I don't know. Could you have done like a little chase scene with him? Had him escape? Had his cat turn on him? Sure. You could have wrapped it up that way without the film feeling like it was dragging. So I'm kind of leaning towards they left this in to stretch the time out a little bit admittedly I had forgotten how this movie ended and I had convinced myself that the cat did turn on him. Like he said something nasty to the cat and she just picked him up and down the gullet he went. And that's not what happened. And it would make sense that it would. Uh, So I think uh, what you're saying is correct. I think that you certainly could have gone that way. And perhaps part of this was to stretch it for time, but I don't find the ending to be egregious by any stretch of the imagination. It's it's just funny that you think that it drags and I think that it's abrupt. Yeah, that's interesting. That's two completely different ways of looking at it. But I mean, I will say at least we got the London icon in there. I mean, how do you not do Big Ben? It's in Peter Pan 
Well, you have right. to. Right. And, and and now you've you've already done Buckingham Palace, so like you're gonna make sure you got everything in there, right? Of course, it would only make sense. Could you have done London Bridge? Sure. Uh, y- yeah, but y- you you can't do it all. So I think if if you're gonna pick one thing that that you're going to use other than Buckingham Palace, I mean, let me ask you a question: If you showed a f- third grader a picture of Big Ben, they're gonna know what it is. If you show them a picture of London Bridge, do they know what it is? Like your average third grade student. True. No, they but they know what Big Ben is, right? All right, so let's. I, we can move. Are you ready to move on to casting characters here? I I kind of can't believe how quickly we've flown through this. It's it's for for a for an animated classic. We're kind of moving through it very quick. But do I need to remind you that it only had a running time of an hour and fifteen minutes? And yet, I will say this: I don't feel like it could have been a short though. No, no, I, I don't like this to me couldn't have been shaved down to 45 minutes and been on the wonderful world of Disney. Right. Because then you would have destroyed everything that's good about it. Correct. All right. So let's just move on here to the casting characters. Barry Ingram uh, or Ingham plays Basil. I think he's just absolutely fantastic here. I think he gives the character so much life. I love how eccentric he is. I love how manic he is at times. Um, You pointed out the comparisons to some of Johnny Depp's roles. I think that this is really, really a great, great lead character for, for any Disney film. I agree. I think that he's everything that you would expect him to be, everything that you would want to see in a Sherlock Holmes, but I love that they didn't totally rip off that character. Yes, And I really don't think that they could have taken too much liberty with this character. But at the same time, I don't know why you'd want to. Well, you want to be careful with it because Sherlock Holmes is a story that has been told so many times. And yet at the same time, you're trying to kind of move forward with this original concept. So you are trying to draw influence from a timeless character but you don't want to take too much influence from a timeless character because then people just sit there and say, well, we've seen this before. Right. No, they told the line perfectly. And I think the same can be said about Val Betton's character, uh, Dawson. I think that um, he is, as I pointed out earlier, the perfect uh, perfect yin and yang. Uh, I think that he does a great job of balancing out uh, Basil, but not in a way that... Uh, Watson has in the past this character I don't want to say he's more subdued but he's a softer character he he's he's not just part of the brain trust I mean he is but I think the fact that he is kind and he's very green to this whole thing mm-hmm. you know in spite of the fact that he's a veteran he really has no experience with this private investigation so he's so like sort of a fish out of water and he's learning on the fly, but I think that it's just a great balance that you strike here. That's what I was going to say. You know that he's very intelligent, but at the same time, he has that quality of being completely in over his head. And they do that with that balance of these characters because he's sort of in awe of Basil. 
Yeah. And that's where you get the, yes, he's smart. And, and yes, he could probably be doing this on his own, but they need to bounce off of each other. Yes. Vincent Price, Radigan, we mentioned it before, absolutely home run. I, I don't have much else to say at risk of repeating myself. He's he's amazing, and I think that he's a super underrated and I dare say forgotten about villain. Yeah, I think one of like I, I've I've mentioned the Skull King so many times on Monorail Radio and how he's such a great villain and you forget about him because the Black Cauldron is such a mess. But Radigan is another one that is forgotten about, but unjustly so. Like I can understand why. The Skull King gets forgotten about. But in this case, you have a very good movie. You have a movie that people keep coming back to. People enjoy it. It was a big success. It has a big following. The fact that he has completely fallen by the wayside really does not make any sense. I mean, he's not Cruella, right? And he's not Scar. And he's not Jafar. But he's not far off either. He's one that I would love to see as a rare character. I don't know if that's a thing because we've never gotten to do the the villains after hours event. Right. But if I saw him there, I I would like pass out. Suzanne Polachek plays Olivia. She is just so sweet and cute in this movie. She's incredible. I mean, to to convey like how frightened she is, uh and and how emotional she can be at times, but at the same time, she's brave and holding her own. Uh, yeah, I, I love Olivia. She's a great character. Candy Candido plays Fidget. Scary sounding, but yet so funny at the same time. This was, again, really great casting. Yeah, and the animation is incredible. I love what they did with the peg leg and how that lent to his movement. I love when Radigan almost feeds him to the cat and he gets spat out and his ears look like Swiss cheese because he's been chewed on. Yeah. I mean, he's been through the ringer and he looks like it, but he keeps bouncing back. And he's, again, another incredible forgotten character. Alan Young plays Hiram Flaversham, or as I call him, Uncle Scrooge. (laughs) It's Uncle Scrooge from DuckTales. And... I mean, listen, we know that Disney has a history of reusing their talent, but I think DuckTales was a thing by this point. So when you have somebody that's playing, like, there's, it's not like a different inflection. It is the same exact voice. I remember as a kid, being, it was like when Ka was Winnie the Pooh. And I couldn't get past that. Right. I kind of had the same thing going on here as a kid. I don't think that bothered me that much when I was a kid. I mean, if DuckTales wasn't airing, it was certainly in production. So, yeah, they maybe could have been a little bit more careful trying to differentiate the voices. Um, Character-wise, though, I like that for... Someone who sort of goes down without a fight, I like that we do see him fight back. And even though he can't actively do anything to save his daughter, I I love the moment when he dumps the water or he has the robot dump the tea on itself. Yeah. I think that's so great. All right. Let's move on to the music. 
This will be fast. The world's greatest criminal mind is the Radigan song. It is a woefully forgotten classic. Yes. I think it does so much for the character. The scene is great, but the song is such an earworm. It definitely is. But is it fair to say that it's forgotten? Because what I remember most about watching this as a kid is not so much viewing the film over and over. Radigan was part of the Disney sing-along. That's what I remember most about this number. I think I actually might have seen that first and then wanted to see the movie that this number was a part of. And then we discovered The Great Mouse Detective. I didn't have the VHS of the sing-along that had this on it, but I would imagine that a lot of people were exposed to this movie if they did see this in a sing-along. But that's exactly my point. Like, with all of the songs in, in the Disney catalog, you thought to put this one in, which would make sense because if the VHS came out in 1987 or 1988, of course you want to capitalize on one of the newer films, you want to kind of showcase it a little bit, but you thought enough of it to put it into a sing-along tape, and it just seems like it kind of died. Like, in time, it just became forgotten about. Right, especially because in the sing-along, they cut out the part where, obviously, they're not going to horrify us unless we're watching the full full film. Uh, They cut out the part where he feeds the mouse that called him a rat to the cat. So like the party comes to a screeching halt where he's in the fountain and he calls him a rat. And then it just picks up the song where everybody's like, Oh, let's make Radigan forget about this. And you know, they just keep going. But that, that's what I remembered most about it, but it was always the earworm, no matter how I was viewing it. Uh, it's a great character number. It's a, it's a great animated sequence too. I love the color of the pink champagne it's definitely forgotten about, and that's wrong. Let Me Be Good to You reminds me of Johnny Dangerously when Mary Lou Henner sings to Michael Keaton and Joe Piscopo. Have you ever seen Johnny Dangerously? No. We're going to write that wrong. Um, Melissa Manchester sings here. She plays Miss Kitty Mouse, I believe was the name of the character. Um, originally, Eisner wanted Madonna for this role. See, that's interesting because I thought Bet Mid I thought it was Bet Midler, especially because, you know, she's contracted with the studio at this time. Right. Well this this was a year before Oliver and Company, so they wouldn't have had her in back to back films. Even though she wasn't a huge character in this. I mean, they could have gotten her to do a one-off. Well, there were two people... Uh, Look, they kicked the animators out of their building to give them a dressing room. She can give us a song. Yeah, fair enough. But there were two people that they had kind of honed in on. One was Madonna, and the other one is the most uh, favorite uh, pop star, I guess you would call her, recording artist especially in the city of St. Louis, if you're a blues fan. Laura Branigan was the other one that they had talked about getting. Oh, wow. Uh, And they landed on Melissa Manchester, who did a fine job. The problem is that the character serves no purpose. After She exists to sing this song, and that's it. 
So like when you when you get introduced to her and it's great Dawson's up there he's drugged and he's up there dancing with her you you kind of are led to believe that she is somehow going to like become a part of the story like she's going to cr- help create a diversion something no it's it's just this is there so that we had a song in the bar and a bar fight would ensue which is fine. It's a funny enough scene and the song's really good. But this is where I am wondering what didn't make it onto the screen because I feel like there is unfinished business here with this character specifically. I totally agree with you because you are led to believe that she's going to be maybe not a pivotal role in the story, but at least a plot point. Sort of like um, in Newsies, where they go to, uh, I, I forget her name, but where they go and to the show and she's singing yeah. and they help the boys. Yeah, she hey, Newsies, the, what's new? Yeah, and, and she helps them. I kind of thought that was going to be the same thing here, but as you said, no, nothing, she gives nothing to the story at all whatsoever. But at the same time, I still think you needed something to round out this scene because without this song you're not going to get that full atmosphere that you need. They'll pan the room and show the piano player, but it's not going to create that same ambiance that this song does. And I can totally see a world where Madonna sings this sort of like Marilyn Manson singing. Marilyn Manson, listen to me. Oh my God, it's been a day. (laughs) I was going to say, what Disney movie are you talking about? I was going to say Marilyn Monroe. Something that Tim Burton made, I'm sure. I meant Marilyn Monroe singing happy birthday to the president. I could see that sort of a number. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. But that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm just wondering, was there, was there a bigger purpose for this character? And, And we just don't know, which kind of gets me into our final say of this film. Honestly, the movie is near perfect. I think it's beautifully drawn. I think it's paced really well. I think the characters are a ton of fun. I love the setting. The two songs that we get are a lot of fun. But I think the runtime in conjunction with this basically useless character leads me to believe that there is a big chunk of this movie that we have never seen before. That there was something else that was meant to happen. This this character, maybe I'm reading too much into this, and, and I'm interested in knowing what everybody has to say. Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. Email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. There, there just seems like something is missing. It seems like some like Jeffrey Katzenberg left something on the cutting room floor and I want to know what it is. I want the director's cut of Basil of Baker Street. And you can call it Basil of Baker Street. I want the director's cut of this film because something just... It's a complete movie, but something feels like it's just not there. Yeah, I would definitely love to see a director's cut because it's Ron Clements and John Musker, the dynamic duo. So anytime that they team up, I'm a fan and want to see what else they have. Uh, yeah, I I tend to agree with you. I don't find a lot of fault with this film, except for the last scene at Big Ben dragging a little bit. 
But I think you're right. I think what stops this from being perfect is that it definitely feels like something is missing. And I think now looking back on it, what this movie really lacks is smooth transitions between the scenes. And, you know, I mentioned it before when I when I had laid it out scene by scene. There's eight of them. But when you break it down. It really does just feel like the scene starts and finishes and then goes right to the next one without some sort of segue or or they didn't really smooth it out transitioning from one to the other. Like, yes, when we go from Basil's house and they, they take Toby to the toy shop, sure. But I feel like a lot of times these scenes are just cut up against each other. And knowing what we do about Katzenberg, it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, as part of his grand marketing design, they had scenes ready to go. And he was like, no, we have to keep it short to hold a kid's interest. You know, and this is when they started testing these films in front of audiences. I'm wondering if something didn't test well. And he was like, nah, get rid of it. And perhaps this was also budgetary because this is coming off of the black cauldron so with budgets being slashed it is possible that there was something else here and they just didn't want to spend the money on paying the animators hiring the musicians getting the studio space having the storyboards done i mean there's any number of ways that it could have happened well the storyboards are done that's the thing and that's Katzenberg's biggest problem was that he didn't understand the animation process is that you are this is not a live action Hollywood film where you shoot it and then maybe you don't have a great take or you have to cut it for time this is being built for the edit so you're not going to have animators waste their time waste the money and put so much effort into something that's eventually going to be cut anyway I I would think think it's something that didn't test well if uh, giving my best guess but it's interesting because we have the whole behind the scenes in waking sleeping beauty and it never comes up right as i mentioned before we want to know what you have to say about the uh, great mouse detective twitter instagram and facebook at monoreal radio you can email us monoreal radio at gmail.com we want to know what you think of the film news of the week is coming up but first a quick break If you're thinking of taking a Disney trip this year, whether it's Walt Disney World in Florida, Disneyland in California, a Disney cruise, or Olani in Hawaii, get in touch with me for a free quote. I would love to help you plan a trip for you and your family. Or even if you've already booked, reach out. I want to help get you the best deal possible. You can contact me on any of the Monoreal Radio social media outlets or shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at magicalvacationplanner.com. News of the week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. Listen, it's 2021. We're getting back to normal. So it means we're ready to party. We're ready to have fun. We're ready to start going to weddings again, right? And if you have a wedding coming up, and if you are a huge Disney fan, I mean, I'm sure you are if you're listening to this, or maybe you're not. Maybe you just need some really polished, good-looking save-the-dates, invitations, thank-you cards, table numbers. If you need it, Kelly will take care of you. Plus, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Be sure to see everything that Kelly has online at karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. Other than weddings and all of the fun that we are going to have moving forward, 
because now is party time. We got to go to the movies this week, which we've done before, but we got to have like the full movie going experience at the AMC and enjoy it and take in Black Widow. And it wasn't just us. Now, given Premier Access did sell, I think, something to the tune of about $40 million worth of unlocks on the film on Disney+, Plus, but the domestic gross and the overseas gross with the Premier Access, Black Widow, for its opening weekend, made $215 million. Dollars, two hundred and fifteen million dollars. Actually, according to Variety, it made twenty million more in theaters than it did on Disney Plus. So that is incredibly encouraging. I am very happy to see that because this film was made to be seen in a theater, and you can get our initial reactions on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, we filmed a monoreal in a minute review, so we barely even scratched the surface of what this movie is. But we did give our initial reactions, and this is one I'm looking looking forward to really being able to break down in a full review. Yes. Continuing the conversation of getting back to normal, kind of, we are now halfway to Christmas, which... I like hot weather and summer and the beach too much to start thinking about Christmas. But it's Disney, so we've been in Halloween at Disney since Valentine's Day. So here they are announcing the Christmas slate. And we're starting to get some questions answered. Um, Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party is not coming back this year. We are instead getting... Very Merriest After Hours. That's the name of the party. They're going to have the treats. They're going to have pop-up characters. They haven't said anything about meet and greet yet. No parade, as far as we can tell. But you're going to get four hours in the Magic Kingdom after it closes. And we're going to have Minnie's Wonderful Christmas Time Fireworks. Which I think... I think I want to say is the same as 2019. I, I know it was so. like a mini themed show. Yeah. Um, it begs the question. Listen, it's great that this is coming back, but it begs the question. Would you, you the listener, but also you personally, would you spend the money that Disney is charging for now, I want to call it boo-bash. I wanted to call it boo-to-you, but boo-bash. Would you spend that money to go see this? Or if given the opportunity, are you holding off for the return of Very Merry? Because we've done Very Merry a few times. I feel like there's two schools of thought here. If you were planning to go in 2020 and it was your child's first trip... And you got pushed back. I would say it's worth it because if you've never seen Very Merry before, you don't necessarily know what you're missing. Plus, you get that extra time in the park. Now, on the other hand, 
for people that go every year for us we go every other year to do our big vacation I don't think it's worth it because first of all I do know what I'm missing um but I feel like this is also one of these delightful chapecky things that we've been talking about where all you are doing is charging us an upsell to stay in the park I don't need four extra hours in the park if I have a fast pass. So just open those back up again. That's really the only way that I would see value in this. I I don't care about the cookies. I mean, I do, but I don't need that as part of, I don't need that free experience as part of a ticketed event. I don't necessarily, I, we know we're getting fireworks back. Thank goodness. So I don't necessarily need that show. The only reason that I would spend this money is to get the extra time. If I felt like we were being pressed to get on all of the rides. And with that said, I mean, we are going, we have our trip planned for November and I think I'm going to pass on this one. We say that now we'll see. We'll see. Um, But I think, yeah, at this point, just given the fact that we have done very merry a couple of times, I tend to agree with you. In all likelihood, we're we're going to skip this one this year. What I'm an I... honest vacation planner. Let me just <laughs> tell you, I'm not going to upsell you on anything I wouldn't do. We are going to get some extra time in the parks, though, because AM. I don't know if they're even calling it magic hours anymore. AM early hours or early access, whatever it is, they're calling it now originally when they announced its return was only at the deluxe resorts and it it upset a lot of people and you and I had even said I yeah, don't... our news went for like a half hour last week we and even the week before that say. and the week before that but I had said I know going in that I am not paying for a deluxe resort therefore I do not get the benefits of a deluxe resort this was also under the guise of I don't really care about the extra hour I get in Magic Kingdom when 25 minutes of that is spent getting through a security line. Right. But one thing we did talk about last week was Disney will make money in spite of itself, but it doesn't change the fact that I think they are ripe for bad press with a lot of the decisions that they were making, scaling things back, you know, the rumor that they're going to upsell you know, uh, a la carte per ride on fast passes. I said that you you are ripe for criticism. And perhaps they recognize that because now every Disney resort, not the good neighbors, but the Disney resorts on property all have access to these early, I'm just going to call them early magic hours because that's what we've called it forever. Early magic hours. Um, I'm not surprised and I am happy to see that they went this route. I'm not surprised either because there was a lot of backlash. But, I mean, what do you want me to say? You found Jesus? Like, you did the right thing. You gave us back something that has been a standard. Congratulations. You did the most basic thing that you could do. But they did it. When a lot of people they, thought they wouldn't, they did it. They did, but the issue is here is that they're taking too much away and not giving enough back. There is no balance. You're taking the Magical Express away, and they have not broken ground. Unless unless there's a tunnel system for this bullet train that they're doing that we don't know about, and maybe they have broken ground on it, which I highly doubt. Um, 
you know, they took away the minivan. Like you, you need some sort of a balance here. Thanos would be enraged by this. <laughs> well, I'm enraged by it. Like Thanos, this was inevitable and they brought it back. So in time, I do believe we're going to see a lot of things return. Not everything. I think everything is a stretch, but I think we're going to see a lot of things return. And now we're starting to see more resorts are getting opened as well. That's what I was really waiting for. Because I had said last week, just, you know, from from being a vacation planner, the availability was so low. And I was like, you have to be giving very merry back if that's what you're waiting for and you're going to open up all these hotels. Now, that's not the case. And we did get the hotels open, but I shouldn't complain because I'm at least happy that things like fireworks are coming back in some capacity, that they are doing some sort of ticketed event. This was a hectic week for Jackie, though. (laughs) This was a hectic week for you. Um, We are now only, at the time of this recording, three days, which is insane, three days away from the start of the International Food and Wine Festival. Our friends Brennan and Catherine at Detour to Neverland did a preview of it. Uh, You guys should totally go listen to that. It It was a lot of fun. I listened to it today when I was on the road for work, and I actually... I actually did have to shut it off at one point because I was getting very hungry. (laughs) They weren't helping. Um, But I did finish it after I ate. Really good stuff. Um, But something that is interesting is that they are opening this festival in phases. Not all of the food options are going to be available right away. Some things they're holding until October 1st. You can assume a lot of that is because of the 50th anniversary. Um, and Brendan and Catherine had even said, I'm sure some of it, they're heavier dishes. More stuff that you would associate with eating in the fall because, you know, the Food and Wine Festival was always a fall festival anyway. It's They're starting it so insanely early this year. But there is hope, fingers crossed, that you are going to get, albeit abridged, there is hope that in the next phase or even in the third phase, however many phases it's going to take to get this festival open, that you get a return of Eat to the Beat. And you've seen, and listen, everything you read on the internet is true. We You've seen some leaked schedules. Some of the artists have actually accidentally put their performance dates on their own websites, which would lead you to believe that they have at least had preliminary conversations. I think it was Tiffany that put on her website that she was doing two nights at Epcot. What were you doing on Tiffany's website? I saw it on social media, and then I went to go and check it out myself, and in fact, it was there. But the point is, I think there's hope don't don't give up hope that there is no eat to the beat this year. I think you're going to get it. See, this I actually think that they're playing smart because if you're talking about doing it in phases, first of all, food-wise, it just makes sense because I don't want to eat beef bourguignon from France in 90-degree weather over the summer. So if that's what you're holding off on and more of those hot dishes, I, I totally get that. But as far as the phases and if they do give us eat to the beat later on, I think that's a smart play because if you're booking your trip based on wine and food and then they announce all these acts after the fact and you can't move your vacation, which I can, you can't on your own, but I can, um, 
I think people would be put off by that if they booked and then it's like, well, we thought we were getting the whole thing and now you're adding more. If, if you know that you're in phase one and there's going to be a phase three, Disney's covering themselves. For sure. But I also think that starting the wine and food festival so early in July is like, oh, look, something shiny to distract us from Harmonious. It could be. And that's all I'm going to say because I promised I wouldn't keep bringing it up. But oh, Okay, very good. Do you feel better? Are you? Are, do you feel like you've put it out there in the world? I mean, hey, maybe Disney's listening. Everybody got their morning magic hours back. Perhaps we will finally get the harmonious barges moved, except probably not going to happen. Okay, I will start that riot here. You heard it first <laughs> on Monoreal Radio. I will lead that charge. Uh, well, thank you guys for joining us this and every week on Monorail Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. Of course, all of the social media at Monorail Radio on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Email us, monorailradio at gmail.com. And for links to everywhere you can find the show and all of the social media, it is online at monorailradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monorail Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.